At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Chapter 31 of Anne of the Island by Lucy Maud Montgomery. Read for LibriVox by Karen Savage. Visit LibriVox.org for more information or to volunteer. Anne of the Island. Chapter 31. Anne to Philippa. Anne Shirley to Philippa Gordon. Greeting. Well, beloved, it's high time I was writing you. Here am I, installed once more as a country schoolma'am at Valley Road, boarding at Wayside, the home of Miss Janet Sweet. Janet is a dear soul, and very nice-looking. Tall, but not over-tall. Stoutish, yet with a certain restraint of outline suggestive of a thrifty soul who is not going to be over-lavish, even in the matter of avoir du poids. She has a knot of soft, crimpy brown hair with a thread of grey in it, a sunny face with rosy cheeks, and big, kind eyes as blue as forget-me-nots. Moreover, she is one of those delightful old-fashioned cooks who don't care a bit if they ruin your digestion, as long as they can give you feasts of fat things. I like her, and she likes me, principally, it seems, because she had a sister named Anne who died young. "'I'm real glad to see you,' she said briskly, when I landed in her yard. "'My, you don't look a mite like I expected. I was sure you'd be dark. My sister Anne was dark. And here you are, red-headed.' For a few minutes I thought I wasn't going to like Janet as much as I had expected at first sight. Then I reminded myself that I really must be more sensible than to be prejudiced against anyone simply because she called my hair red. Probably the word Auburn was not in Janet's vocabulary at all. Wayside is a dear sort of little spot. The house is small and white, set down in a delightful little hollow that drops away from the road. Between road and house is an orchard and flower garden all mixed up together. The front door walk is bordered with quahog clamshells—cowhawks, Janet calls them. There is Virginia creeper over the porch and moss on the roof. My room is a neat little spot off the parlor, just big enough for the bed and me. Over the head of my bed there is a picture of Robbie Burns standing at Highland Mary's grave, shadowed by an enormous weeping willow tree. Robert's face is so lugubrious that it is no wonder I have had bad dreams. Why, the first night I was here I dreamed I couldn't laugh. The parlor is tiny and neat. Its one window is so shaded by a huge willow that the room has a grotto-like effect of emerald gloom. There are wonderful tidies on the chairs, and gay mats on the floor, and books and cards carefully arranged on a round table, and vases of dried grass on the mantelpiece. Between the vases is a cheerful decoration of preserved coffin-plates, pertaining respectively to Janet's father and mother, a brother, her sister Anne, and a hired man who died here once. If I go suddenly insane some of these days, know all men by these presents that those coffin-plates have caused it. But it's all delightful, and I said so. Janet loved me for it, just as she detested poor Esther because Esther had said so much shade was unhygienic and had objected to sleeping on a feather bed. Now I glory in feather beds, and the more unhygienic and feathery they are, the more I glory. Janet says it is a comfort to see me eat. She had been so afraid I would be like Miss Haythorn, who wouldn't eat anything but fruit and hot water for breakfast, and tried to make Janet give up frying things. Esther is really a dear girl, but she is rather given to fads. The trouble is that she hasn't enough imagination, and has a tendency to indigestion. Janet told me I could have the use of the parlor when any young men called. I don't think there are many to call. I haven't seen a young man in Valley Road yet, except the next-door hired boy, Sam Tolliver, a very tall, lank, tow-haired youth. 
He came over one evening recently and sat for an hour on the garden fence near the front porch where Janet and I were doing fancy work. The only remarks he volunteered in all that time were, "'Have a peppermint, miss. Do now. Fine thing for catar peppermints.' And, "'Powerful lot of jump grasses round here to-night.' Yep. But there is a love affair going on here. It seems to be my fortune to be mixed up more or less actively with elderly love affairs. Mr. and Mrs. Irving always say that I brought about their marriage. Mrs. Stephen Clark of Carmody persists in being most grateful to me for a suggestion which somebody else would probably have made if I hadn't. I do really think, though, that Ludovic Speed would never have got any further along than placid courtship if I had not helped him and Theodora Dix out. In the present affair I am only a passive spectator. I've tried once to help things along and made an awful mess of it, so I shall not meddle again. I'll tell you all about it when we meet. End of chapter 31 All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Chapter 32 of Anne of the Island by Lucy Maud Montgomery. Read for LibriVox by Karen Savage. Visit LibriVox.org for more information or to volunteer. Anne of the Island, Chapter 32. Tea with Mrs. Douglas. On the first Thursday night of Anne's sojourn in Valley Road, Janet asked her to go to prayer meeting. Janet blossomed out like a rose to attend that prayer meeting. She wore a pale blue pansy-sprinkled muslin dress with more ruffles than one would ever have supposed economical Janet could be guilty of, and a white leghorn hat with pink roses and three ostrich feathers on it. Anne felt quite amazed. Later on she found out Janet's motive in so arraying herself—a motive as old as Eden. Valley Road prayer meetings seemed to be essentially feminine. There were thirty-two women present, two half-grown boys, and one solitary man beside the minister. Anne found herself studying this man. He was not handsome or young or graceful. He had remarkably long legs, so long that he had to keep them coiled up under his chair to dispose of them, and he was stoop-shouldered. His hands were big, his hair wanted barbering, and his mustache was unkempt. But Anne thought she liked his face. It was kind and honest and tender. There was something else in it, too. Just what Anne found it hard to define. She finally concluded that this man had suffered and been strong, and it had been made manifest in his face. There was a sort of patient, humorous endurance in his expression which indicated that he would go to the stake if need be, but would keep on looking pleasant until he really had to begin squirming. When prayer-meeting was over this man came up to Janet and said, "'May I see you home, Janet?' Janet took his arm, as primly and shyly as if she were no more than sixteen having her first escort home, Anne told the girls at Patty's place later on. "'Miss Shirley, permit me to introduce Mr. Douglas,' she said stiffly. Mr. Douglas nodded and said, "'I was looking at you in prayer-meeting, miss, and thinking what a nice little girl you were.' Such a speech from ninety-nine people out of a hundred would have annoyed Anne bitterly but the way in which Mr. Douglas said it made her feel that she had received a very real and pleasing compliment. She smiled appreciatively at him, and dropped obligingly behind on the moonlit road. So Janet had a beau. Anne was delighted. Janet would make a paragon of a wife—cheery, economical, tolerant, and a very queen of cooks. It would be a flagrant waste on nature's part to keep her a permanent old maid. "'John Douglas asked me to take you up to see his mother,' said Janet the next day. She's bedrid a lot of the time, and never goes out of the house. But she's powerful fond of company, and always wants to see my boarders. Can you go up this evening?" Anne assented. But later in the day Mr. Douglas called on his mother's behalf to invite them up to tea on Saturday evening. 
"'Oh, why didn't you put on your pretty pansy dress?' asked Anne when they left home. It was a hot day, and poor Janet, between her excitement and her heavy black cashmere dress, looked as if she were being broiled alive. Old Mrs. Douglas would think it terrible frivolous and unsuitable, I'm afraid. John likes that dress, though," she added wistfully. The old Douglas homestead was half a mile from Wayside, cresting a windy hill. The house itself was large and comfortable, old enough to be dignified, and girdled with maple groves and orchards. There were big, trim barns behind it, and everything bespoke prosperity. Whatever the patient endurance in Mr. Douglas's face had meant, it hadn't, so Anne reflected, meant debts and duns. John Douglas met them at the door and took them into the sitting-room, where his mother was enthroned in an armchair. Anne had expected old Mrs. Douglas to be tall and thin, because Mr. Douglas was. Instead, she was a tiny scrap of a woman, with soft pink cheeks, mild blue eyes, and a mouth like a baby's. Dressed in a beautiful, fashionably made black silk dress, with a fluffy white shawl over her shoulders, and her snowy hair surmounted by a dainty lace cap, she might have posed as a grandmother doll. "'How do you do, Janet, dear?' she said sweetly. "'I am so glad to see you again, dear.' She put up her pretty old face to be kissed. "'And this is our new teacher. I am delighted to meet you. My son has been singing your praises until I am half jealous, and I am sure Janet ought to be wholly so.' Poor Janet blushed. Anne said something polite and conventional, and then everybody sat down and made talk. It was hard work, even for Anne, for nobody seemed at ease except old Mrs. Douglas, who certainly did not find any difficulty in talking. She made Janet sit by her, and stroked her hand occasionally. Janet sat and smiled, looking horribly uncomfortable in her hideous dress, and John Douglas sat without smiling. At the tea-table Mrs. Douglas gracefully asked Janet to pour the tea. Janet turned redder than ever, but did it. Anne wrote a description of that meal to Stella. We had cold tongue and chicken and strawberry preserves, lemon pie and tarts and chocolate cake and raisin cookies and pound cake and fruit cake, and a few other things, including more pie—caramel pie, I think it was. After I had eaten twice as much as was good for me, Mrs. Douglas sighed and said she feared she had nothing to tempt my appetite. "'I'm afraid dear Janet's cooking has spoiled you for any other,' she said sweetly. "'Of course nobody in Valley Road aspires to rival her. Won't you have another piece of pie, Miss Shirley? You haven't eaten anything. Stella, I had eaten a helping of tongue and one of chicken, three biscuits, a generous allowance of preserves, a piece of pie, a tart, and a square of chocolate cake. After tea, Mrs. Douglas smiled benevolently and told John to take dear Janet out into the garden and get her some roses. Miss Shirley will keep me company while you are out, won't you? she said plaintively. She settled down in her armchair with a sigh. I am a very frail old woman, Miss Shirley. For over twenty years I've been a great sufferer. For twenty long, weary years I've been dying by inches. How painful," said Anne, trying to be sympathetic and succeeding only in feeling idiotic. There have been scores of nights when they thought I could never live to see the dawn," went on Mrs. Douglas solemnly. Nobody knows what I've gone through. Nobody can know but myself. Well, it can't last very much longer now. My weary pilgrimage will soon be over, Miss Shirley. It is a great comfort to me that John will have such a good wife to look after him when his mother is gone. A great comfort, Miss Shirley." "'Janet is a lovely woman,' said Anne warmly. "'Lovely! A beautiful character,' assented Mrs. Douglas. "'And a perfect housekeeper, something I never was. My health would not permit it, Miss Shirley. I am indeed thankful that John has made such a wise choice. I hope and believe that he will be happy. He is my only son, Miss Shirley, and his happiness lies very near my heart." "'Of course,' said Anne stupidly. 
For the first time in her life she was stupid, yet she could not imagine why. She seemed to have absolutely nothing to say to this sweet, smiling, angelic old lady who was patting her hand so kindly. "'Come and see me soon again, dear Janet,' said Mrs. Douglas lovingly when they left. "'You don't come half often enough. But then I suppose John will be bringing you here to stay all the time one of these days.' Anne, happening to glance at John Douglas as his mother spoke, gave a positive start of dismay. He looked as a tortured man might look when his tormentors gave the rack the last turn of possible endurance. She felt sure he must be ill, and hurried poor blushing Janet away. "'Isn't old Mrs. Douglas a sweet woman?' asked Janet as they went down the road. "Hm," answered Anne, absently. She was wondering why John Douglas had looked so. "'She's been a terrible sufferer,' said Janet feelingly. "'She takes terrible spells. It keeps John all worried up. He's scared to leave home for fear his mother will take a spell and nobody there but the hired girl." End of chapter 32 all LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Chapter thirty three of Anne of the Island by Lucy Maud Montgomery. Read for LibriVox by Karen Savage. Visit LibriVox.org for more information or to volunteer. Anne of the Island. Chapter thirty three. He just kept coming and coming. Three days later, Anne came home from school and found Janet crying. Tears and Janet seemed so incongruous that Anne was honestly alarmed. "'Oh, what is the matter?' she cried anxiously. "'I'm—I'm I'm forty today,' sobbed Janet. "'Well, you were nearly that yesterday and it didn't hurt,' comforted Anne, trying not to smile. "'But—but,' went on Janet with a big gulp, "'John Douglas won't ask me to marry him.' "'Oh, but he will,' said Anne lamely. "'You must give him time, Janet.' "'Time!' said Janet, with indescribable scorn. He has had twenty years. How much time does he want? Do you mean that John Douglas has been coming to see you for twenty years? He has. And he has never so much as mentioned marriage to me. And I don't believe he ever will now. I've never said a word to a mortal about it, but it seems to me I've just got to talk it out with someone at last or go crazy. John Douglas begun to go with me twenty years ago before Mother died. Well, he kept coming and coming, and after a spell I begun making quilts and things. But he never said anything about getting married, only just kept coming and coming. There wasn't anything I could do. Mother died when we'd been going together for eight years. I thought maybe he would speak out then, seeing as I was left alone in the world. He was real kind and feeling, and did everything he could for me. But he never said marry. And that's the way it has been going on ever since. People blame me for it. They say I won't marry him because his mother is so sickly and I don't want the bother of waiting on her. Why, I'd love to wait on John's mother. But I let them think so. I'd rather they blame me than pity me. It's so dreadful humiliating that John won't ask me. And why won't he? Seems to me if I only knew his reason I wouldn't mind it so much." "'Perhaps his mother doesn't want him to marry anybody,' suggested Anne. "'Oh, she does. She told me time and again that she'd love to see John settled before her time comes. She's always giving him hints. You heard her yourself the other day. I thought I'd a gone through the floor." "'It's beyond me,' said Anne helplessly. She thought of Ludovic's speed. But the cases were not parallel. John Douglas was not a man of Ludovic's type. "'You should show more spirit, Janet,' she went on resolutely. "'Why didn't you send him about his business long ago?' "'I couldn't,' said poor Janet pathetically. "'You see, Anne, I've always been awful fond of John. He might just as well keep coming as not, for there was never anybody else I'd want so it didn't matter. But it might have made him speak out like a man," urged Anne. Janet shook her head. No, I guess not. 
I was afraid to try, anyway, for fear he'd think I meant it and just go. I suppose I'm a poor-spirited creature, but that is how I feel, and I can't help it." "'Oh, you could help it, Janet. It isn't too late yet. Take a firm stand. Let that man know you are not going to endure his shilly-shallying any longer. I'll back you up.' "'I don't know,' said Janet hopelessly. I don't know if I could ever get up enough spunk. Things have drifted so long. But I'll think it over." Anne felt that she was disappointed in John Douglas. She had liked him so well, and she had not thought him the sort of man who would play fast and loose with a woman's feelings for twenty years. He certainly should be taught a lesson, and Anne felt vindictively that she would enjoy seeing the process. Therefore she was delighted when Janet told her, as they were going to prayer-meeting the next night, that she meant to show some spirit. I'll let John Douglas see I'm not going to be trodden on any longer." "'You are perfectly right,' said Anne emphatically. When prayer-meeting was over, John Douglas came up with his usual request. Janet looked frightened but resolute. "'No, thank you,' she said icily. "'I know the road home pretty well alone. I ought to, seeing I've been travelling it for forty years. So you needn't trouble yourself, Mr. Douglas.'" Anne was looking at John Douglas, and in that brilliant moonlight she saw the last twist of the rack again. Without a word he turned and strode down the road. "'Stop! Stop!' Anne called wildly after him, not caring in the least for the other dumbfounded onlookers. "'Mr. Douglas, stop! Come back!' John Douglas stopped, but he did not come back. Anne flew down the road, caught his arm, and fairly dragged him back to Janet. "'You must come back,' she said imploringly. "'It's all a mistake, Mr. Douglas, all my fault. I made Janet do it. She didn't want to, but it's all right now, isn't it, Janet?' Without a word. Janet took his arm and walked away. Anne followed them meekly home and slipped in by the back door. "'Well, you are a nice person to back me up,' said Janet sarcastically. "'I couldn't help it, Janet,' said Anne repentantly. "'I just felt as if I had stood by and seen murder done. I had to run after him. Oh, I'm just as glad you did. When I saw John Douglas making off down that road I just felt as if every little bit of joy and happiness that was left in my life was going with him. It was an awful feeling.' "'Did he ask you why you did it?' asked Anne. No, he never said a word about it, replied Janet dully. End of chapter 33. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Chapter 34 of Anne of the Island by Lucy Maud Montgomery. Read for LibriVox by Karen Savage. Visit LibriVox.org for more information or to volunteer. Anne of the Island. Chapter 34. John Douglas Speaks at Last. Anne was not without a feeble hope that something might come of it after all. But nothing did. John Douglas came and took Janet driving and walked home from prayer-meeting with her, as he had been doing for twenty years, and as he seemed likely to do for twenty years more. The summer waned. Anne taught her school and wrote letters and studied a little. Her walks to and from school were pleasant. She always went by way of the swamp. It was a lovely place, a boggy soil green with the greenest of mossy hillocks, a silvery brook meandered through it, and spruces stood erectly, their boughs a trail with grey-green mosses, their roots overgrown with all sorts of woodland lovelinesses. Nevertheless, Anne found life in Valley Road a little monotonous. To be sure, there was one diverting incident. She had not seen the lank, tow-headed Samuel of the Peppermints since the evening of his call, save for chance meetings on the road. But one warm August night he appeared, and solemnly seated himself on the rustic bench by the porch. He wore his usual working habiliments, consisting of very patched trousers, a blue jean shirt out of the elbows, and a ragged straw hat. 
He was chewing a straw, and he kept on chewing it while he looked solemnly at Anne. Anne laid her book aside with a sigh and took up her doily. Conversation with Sam was really out of the question. After a long silence, Sam suddenly spoke. "'I'm leaving over there,' he said abruptly, waving his straw in the direction of the neighboring house. "'Oh, are you?' said Anne politely. "'Yep.' "'And where are you going now?' "'Well, I've been thinking some of getting a place of my own. There's one that'd suit me over at Millersville, but if I rents it I'll want a woman.' "'I suppose so,' said Anne vaguely. "'Yep.' There was another long silence. Finally Sam removed his straw again and said, "'Will you have me?' "'What?' gasped Anne. "'Will you have me?' "'Do you mean marry you?' queried poor Anne feebly. "'Yep.' "'Why, I'm hardly acquainted with you,' cried Anne indignantly. "'But you'd get acquainted with me after we was married,' said Sam. Anne gathered up her poor dignity. "'Certainly I won't marry you,' she said haughtily. "'Well, you might do worse,' expostulated Sam. "'I'm a good worker and I've got some money in the bank.' "'Don't speak of this to me again. Whatever put such an idea into your head?' said Anne, her sense of humor getting the better of her wrath. It was such an absurd situation. "'You're a likely-looking girl, and you have a right smart way of stepping,' said Sam. "'I don't want no lazy woman. Think it over. I won't change my mind yet a while. Well, I must be getting. Gotta milk the cows.' Anne's allusions concerning proposals had suffered so much of late years that there were few of them left. So she could laugh whole-heartedly over this one, not feeling any secret sting. She mimicked poor Sam to Janet that night, and both of them laughed immoderately over his plunge into sentiment. One afternoon, when Anne's sojourn in Valley Road was drawing to a close, Alec Ward came driving down to Wayside in hot haste for Janet. "'They want you at the Douglas place quick,' he said. "'I really believe old Mrs. Douglas is going to die at last, after pretending to do it for twenty years.' Janet ran to get her hat. Anne asked if Mrs. Douglas was worse than usual. "'She's not half as bad,' said Alec solemnly, "'and that's what makes me think it's serious. Other times she'd be screaming and throwing herself all over the place. This time she's lying still and mum. When Mrs. Douglas is mum, she is pretty sick, you bet.' "'You don't like old Mrs. Douglas?' said Anne curiously. "'I like cats as is cats. I don't like cats as is women,' was Alec's cryptic reply. Janet came home in the twilight. "'Mrs. Douglas is dead,' she said wearily. "'She died soon after I got there. She just spoke to me once. "'I suppose you'll marry John now,' she said. "'It cut me to the heart, Anne, to think John's own mother thought I wouldn't marry him because of her. "'I couldn't say a word, either. There were other women there. I was thankful John had gone out.' Janet began to cry drearily, but Anne brewed her a hot drink of ginger tea to her comforting. To be sure, Anne discovered later on that she had used white pepper instead of ginger, but Janet never knew the difference. The evening after the funeral, Janet and Anne were sitting on the front porch steps at sunset. The wind had fallen asleep in the pinelands, and lurid sheets of heat-lightning flickered across the northern skies. Janet wore her ugly black dress and looked her very worst, her eyes and nose red from crying. They talked little, for Janet seemed faintly to resent Anne's efforts to cheer her up. She plainly preferred to be miserable. Suddenly the gate-latch clicked, and John Douglas strode into the garden. He walked towards them straight over the geranium bed. Janet stood up. So did Anne. Anne was a tall girl and wore a white dress, but John Douglas did not see her. "'Janet,' he said, "'will you marry me?' The words burst out as if they had been wanting to be said for twenty years and must be uttered now before anything else. Janet's face was so red from crying that it couldn't turn any redder, so it turned a most unbecoming purple. "'Why didn't you ask me before?' 
she said slowly. I couldn't. She made me promise not to. Mother made me promise not to. Nineteen years ago she took a terrible spell. We thought she couldn't live through it. She implored me to promise not to ask you to marry me while she was alive. I didn't want to promise such a thing, even though we all thought she couldn't live very long. The doctor only gave her six months. But she begged it on her knees, sick and suffering. I had to promise. "'What had your mother against me?' cried Janet. "'Nothing, nothing. She just didn't want another woman—any woman—there while she was living. She said if I didn't promise she'd die right there and I'd have killed her. So I promised. And she's held me to that promise ever since, though I've gone on my knees to her in my turn to beg her to let me off.' "'Why didn't you tell me this?' asked Janet chokingly. "'If I'd only known, why didn't you just tell me?' "'She made me promise I wouldn't tell a soul.' said John hoarsely. She swore me to it on the Bible. Janet, I'd never have done it if I dreamed it was to be for so long. Janet, you'll never know what I've suffered these nineteen years. I know I've made you suffer too, but you'll marry me for all, won't you, Janet? Oh, Janet, won't you? I've come as soon as I could to ask you." At this moment the stupefied Anne came to her senses and realized that she had no business to be there. She slipped away and did not see Janet until the next morning, when the latter told her the rest of the story. "'That cruel, relentless, deceitful old woman!' cried Anne. "'Hush! She's dead,' said Janet solemnly. "'If she wasn't—but she is. So we mustn't speak evil of her. But I'm happy at last, Anne, and I wouldn't have minded waiting so long a bit if I'd only known why. When are you to be married?' "'Next month. Of course it will be very quiet. I suppose people will talk terrible. They'll say I made haste enough to snap John up as soon as his poor mother was out of the way. John wanted to let them know the truth, but I said no, John.' After all, she was your mother, and will keep the secret between us, and not cast any shadow on her memory. I don't mind what people say, now that I know the truth myself. It don't matter a mite. Let it all be buried with the dead, says I to him. So I coaxed him round to agree with me. You're much more forgiving than I could ever be, said Anne, rather crossly. You'll feel differently about a good many things when you get to be my age, said Janet tolerantly. That's one of the things we learn as we grow older. How to forgive. It comes easier at forty than it did at twenty. End of chapter 34. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Chapter 35 of Anne of the Island by Lucy Maud Montgomery. Read for LibriVox.org by Karen Savage. Visit LibriVox.org for more information or to volunteer. Anne of the Island. Chapter 35. The Last Redmond Year Opens. "'Here we are, all back again, nicely sunburned and rejoicing as a strong man to run a race,' said Phil, sitting down on a suitcase with a sigh of pleasure. "'Isn't it jolly to see this dear old Patty's place again, and Auntie, and the cats? Rusty has lost another piece of ear, hasn't he?' "'Rusty would be the nicest cat in the world if he had no ears at all,' declared Anne loyally from her trunk, while Rusty writhed about her lap in a frenzy of welcome. "'Aren't you glad to see us back, Auntie?' demanded Phil. "'Yes, but I wish you'd tidy things up,' said Aunt Jamesina plaintively, looking at the wilderness of trunks and suitcases by which the four laughing, chattering girls were surrounded. "'You can talk just as well later on. Work first and then play,' used to be my motto when I was a girl. "'Oh, we've just reversed that in this generation, Auntie. Our motto is play your play and then dig in. You can do your work so much better if you've had a good bout of play first. "'If you're going to marry a minister,' said Aunt Jamesina, picking up Joseph and her knitting, and residing herself to the inevitable with the charming grace that made her the queen of housemothers, "'you will have to give up such expressions as dig in.' "'Why?' moaned Phil. 
Oh, why must a minister's wife be supposed to utter only prunes and prisms? I shan't. Everybody on Patterson Street uses slang—that is to say, metaphorical language. And if I didn't, they would think me insufferably proud and stuck up." "'Have you broken the news to your family?' asked Priscilla, feeding the Sarah-cat bits from her lunch-basket. Phil nodded. "'How did they take it?' Oh, mother rampaged, but I stood rock firm, even I, Philippa Gordon, who never before could hold fast to anything. Father was calmer. Father's own daddy was a minister, so you see he has a soft spot in his heart for the cloth. I had Joe up to Mount Holly after mother grew calm, and they both loved him. But mother gave him some frightful hints in every conversation regarding what she had hoped for me. Oh, my vacation pathway hasn't been exactly strewn with roses, girls, dear. But I've won out, and I've got Joe. Nothing else matters." "'To you,' said Aunt Jamesina darkly. "'Nor to Joe, either,' retorted Phil. "'You keep on pitying him. Why, pray? I think he's to be envied. He's getting brains, beauty, and a heart of gold in me.' "'It's well we know how to take your speeches,' said Aunt Jamesina patiently. "'I hope you don't talk like that before strangers. What would they think?' "'Oh, I don't want to know what they think. I don't want to see myself as others see me. I'm sure it would be horribly uncomfortable most of the time. I don't believe Burns was really sincere in that prayer, either. Oh, I dare say we all pray for some things that we really don't want, if we were only honest enough to look into our hearts," owned Aunt Jamesina candidly. I've a notion that such prayers don't rise very far. I used to pray that I might be enabled to forgive a certain person, but I know now I really didn't want to forgive her. When I finally got that I did want to, I forgave her without having to pray about it. I can't picture you as being unforgiving for long," said Stella. Oh, I used to be. But holding spite doesn't seem worth while when you get along in years." "'That reminds me,' said Anne, and told the tale of John and Janet. "'And now tell us about that romantic scene you hinted so darkly at in one of your letters,' demanded Phil. Anne acted out Samuel's proposal with great spirit. The girls shrieked with laughter, and Aunt Jamesina smiled. "'It isn't in good taste to make fun of your bows,' she said severely. "'But,' she added calmly, "'I always did it myself.' "'Tell us about your bows, Auntie,' entreated Phil. "'You must have had any number of them.' "'They're not in the past tense,' retorted Aunt Jamesina. "'I've got them yet. There are three old widowers at home who have been casting sheep's eyes at me for some time. You children needn't think you own all the romance in the world.' "'Widowers and sheep's eyes don't sound very romantic, Auntie. Well, no. But young folks aren't always romantic, either. Some of my bows certainly weren't. I used to laugh at them scandalous poor boys.' There was Jim Elwood. He was always in a sort of daydream, never seemed to sense what was going on. He didn't wake up to the fact that I'd said no till a year after I'd said it. When he did get married, his wife fell out of the sleigh one night when they were driving home from church, and he never missed her. Then there was Dan Winston. He knew too much. He knew everything in this world and most of what is in the next. He could give you an answer to any question, even if you asked him when the judgment day was to be. Milton Edwards was real nice, and I liked him, but I didn't marry him. For one thing, he took a week to get a joke through his head, and for another he never asked me. Horatio Reeve was the most interesting beau I ever had, but when he told a story he dressed it up so that you couldn't see it for the frills. I never could decide whether he was lying or just letting his imagination run loose. "'And what about the others, Auntie? Go away and unpack,' said Aunt Jamesina, waving Joseph at them by mistake for a needle. The others were too nice to make fun of. I shall respect their memory." There's a box of flowers in your room, Anne. They came about an hour ago." After the first week the girls of Patty's Place settled down to a steady grind of study, for this was their last year at Redmond, and graduation honors must be fought for persistently. 
Anne devoted herself to English, Priscilla pored over classics, and Philippa pounded away at mathematics. Sometimes they grew tired, sometimes they felt discouraged, sometimes nothing seemed worth the struggle for it. In one such mood Stella wandered up to the blue room one rainy November evening. Anne sat on the floor in a little circle of light cast by the lamp beside her, amid a surrounding snow of crumpled manuscript. "'What in the world are you doing?' "'Just looking over some old story-club yarns. I wanted something to cheer and inebriate. I'd studied till the world seemed azure, so I came up here and dug these out of my trunk. They are so drenched in tears and tragedy that they are excruciatingly funny.' "'I'm blue and discouraged myself,' said Stella, throwing herself on the couch. "'Nothing seems worth while. My very thoughts are old. I've thought them all before. What is the use of living after all, Anne?' "'Honey, it's just brain-fag that makes us feel that way, and the weather. A pouring, rainy night like this, coming after a hard day's grind, would squelch any one but a Mark Tapley. You know it is worth while to live. Oh, I suppose so. But I can't prove it to myself just now. Just think of all the great and noble souls who have lived and worked in this world," said Anne dreamily. Isn't it worth while to come after them and inherit what they won and taught? Isn't it worth while to think we can share their inspiration? And then all the great souls that will come in the future! Isn't it worth while to work a little and prepare the way for them? Make just one step in their path easier? Oh, my mind agrees with you, Anne, but my soul remains doleful and uninspired. I'm always grubby and dingy on rainy nights. Some nights I like the rain. I like to lie in bed and hear it pattering on the roof and drifting through the pines. I like it when it stays on the roof," said Stella. It doesn't always. I spent a gruesome night in an old country farmhouse last summer. The roof leaked and the rain came pattering down on my bed. There was no poetry in that. I had to get up in the murk midnight and shivy round to pull the bedstead out of the drip, and it was one of those solid old-fashioned beds that weigh a ton, more or less. And then that drip drop drip-drop kept up all night until my nerves just went to pieces. You've no idea what an eerie noise a great drop of rain falling with a mushy thud on a bare floor makes in the night. It sounds like ghostly footsteps and all that sort of thing. What are you laughing over, Anne? These stories. As Phil would say, they are killing, in more senses than one, for everybody died in them. What dazzlingly lovely heroines we had, and how we dressed them! Silks, satins, velvets, jewels, laces—they never wore anything else. Here is one of Jane Andrews' stories depicting her heroine as sleeping in a beautiful white satin nightdress trimmed with seed-pearls. "'Go on,' said Stella. "'I begin to feel that life is worth living as long as there's a laugh in it. Here's one I wrote. My heroine is disporting herself at a ball, glittering from head to foot with large diamonds of the first water. But what booted beauty or rich attire! The paths of glory lead but to the grave. They must either be murdered or die of a broken heart. There was no escape for them. Let me read some of your stories. Well, here's my masterpiece. Note its cheerful title, My Graves. I shed quarts of tears while writing it, and the other girls shed gallons while I read it. Jane Andrews' mother scolded her frightfully because she had so many handkerchiefs in the wash that week. It's a harrowing tale of the wanderings of a Methodist minister's wife. I made her a Methodist because it was necessary that she should wander. She buried a child every place she lived in. There were nine of them, and their graves were severed far apart, ranging from Newfoundland to Vancouver. I described the children, pictured their several deathbeds, and detailed their tombstones and epitaphs. I had intended to bury the whole nine, but when I had disposed of eight, my invention of horrors gave out and I permitted the ninth to live as a hopeless cripple. 
While Stella read My Graves, punctuating its tragic paragraphs with chuckles, and Rusty slept the sleep of a just cat who has been out all night, curled up on a Jane Andrews tale of a beautiful maiden of fifteen who went to nurse in a leper colony, of course dying of the loathsome disease finally, Anne glanced over the other manuscripts and recalled the old days at Avonlea School, when the members of the Story Club, sitting under the spruce trees or down among the ferns by the brook, had written them. What fun they had had! How the sunshine and mirth of those olden summers returned as she read! Not all the glory that was Greece or the grandeur that was Rome could weave such wizardry as those funny, tearful tales of the Story Club. Among the manuscripts Anne found one written on sheets of wrapping paper. A wave of laughter filled her gray eyes as she recalled the time and place of its genesis. It was the sketch she had written the day she fell through the roof of the Cobb duck-house on the Tory road. Anne glanced over it, then fell to reading it intently. It was a little dialogue between asters and sweet-peas, wild canaries in the lilac bush, and the guardian spirit of the garden. After she had read it, she sat staring into space, and when Stella had gone, she smoothed out the crumpled manuscript. "'I believe I will,' she said resolutely. End of chapter 35 all LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Chapter thirty six of Anne of the Island by Lucy Maud Montgomery. Read for LibriVox by Karen Savage. Visit LibriVox.org for more information or to volunteer. Anne of the Island. Chapter thirty six. The Gardener's Call. Here is a letter with an Indian stamp for you, Anne Jimsy, said Phil. Here are three for Stella, and two for Pris, and a glorious fat one for me from Joe. There's nothing for you, Anne, except a circular." Nobody noticed Anne's flush as she took the thin letter Phil tossed her carelessly. But a few minutes later Phil looked up to see a transfigured Anne. "'Honey, what good thing has happened?' "'The youth's friend has accepted a little sketch I sent them a fortnight ago,' said Anne, trying hard to speak as if she were accustomed to having sketches accepted every mail, but not quite succeeding. "'Anne Shirley! How glorious! What was it? When is it to be published? Did they pay you for it?' "'Yes, they've sent a cheque for ten dollars, and the editor writes that he would like to see more of my work. Dear man, he shall. It was an old sketch I found in my box. I rewrote it and sent it in, but I never really thought it could be accepted because it had no plot,' said Anne, recalling the bitter experience of Avril's atonement. "'What are you going to do with that ten dollars, Anne? Let's all go up to town and get drunk,' suggested Phil. I am going to squander it in a wild, soulless revel of some sort," declared Anne gaily. At all events, it isn't tainted money, like the check I got for that horrible, reliable baking-powder story. I spent it usefully for clothes, and hated them every time I put them on. "'Think of having a real live author at Patty's place,' said Priscilla. "'It's a great responsibility,' said Aunt Jamesina solemnly. "'Indeed it is,' agreed Pris with equal solemnity. Authors are kittle-cattle. You never know when or how they will break out. Anne may make copy of us." "'I meant that the ability to write for the press was a great responsibility,' said Aunt Jamesina severely. And I hope Anne realizes it. My daughter used to write stories before she went to the foreign field, but now she has turned her attention to higher things. She used to say her motto was, "'Never write a line you would be ashamed to read at your own funeral.' You'd better take that for yours, Anne, if you are going to embark in literature. Though, to be sure," added Aunt Jamesina perplexedly, Elizabeth always used to laugh when she said it. She always laughed so much that I don't know how she ever came to decide on being a missionary. I'm thankful she did. I prayed that she might. But I wish she hadn't. 
Then Aunt Jamesina wondered why those giddy girls all laughed. Anne's eyes shone all that day. Literary ambitions sprouted and budded in her brain. Their exhilaration accompanied her to Jenny Cooper's walking party, and not even the sight of Gilbert and Christine walking just ahead of her and Roy could quite subdue the sparkle of her starry hopes. Nevertheless, she was not so rapt from things of earth as to be unable to notice that Christine's walk was decidedly ungraceful. But I suppose Gilbert looks only at her face. So like a man, thought Anne scornfully. "'Shall you be home Saturday afternoon?' asked Roy. "'Yes.' "'My mother and sisters are coming to call on you,' said Roy quietly. Something went over Anne which might be described as a thrill, but it was hardly a pleasant one. She had never met any of Roy's family. She realized the significance of his statement. It had, somehow, an irrevocableness about it that chilled her. "'I shall be glad to see them,' she said flatly, and then wondered if she really would be glad. She ought to be, of course. But would it not be something of an ordeal? Gossip had filtered to Anne regarding the light in which the gardeners viewed the infatuation of son and brother. Roy must have brought pressure to bear in the matter of this call. Anne knew she would be weighed in the balance. From the fact that they had consented to call she understood that, willingly or unwillingly, they regarded her as a possible member of their clan. "'I shall just be myself. I shall not try to make a good impression,' thought Anne loftily. But she was wondering what dress she would better wear Saturday afternoon, and if the new style of high hair-dressing would suit her better than the old, and the walking party was rather spoiled for her. By night she had decided that she would wear her brown chiffon on Saturday, but would do her hair low. Friday afternoon none of the girls had classes at Redmond. Stella took the opportunity to write a paper for the Philomathic Society, and was sitting at the table in the corner of the living-room with an untidy litter of notes and manuscript on the floor around her. Stella always vowed she never could write anything unless she threw each sheet down as she completed it. Anne, in her flannel blouse and serge skirt, with her hair rather blown from her windy walk home, was sitting squarely in the middle of the floor, teasing the Sarah-cat with a wishbone. Joseph and Rusty were both curled up in her lap. A warm, plummy odor filled the whole house, for Priscilla was cooking in the kitchen. Presently she came in, enshrouded in a huge work-apron, with a smudge of flour on her nose, to show Aunt Jamesine of the chocolate cake she had just iced. At this auspicious moment the knocker sounded. Nobody paid any attention to it save Phil, who sprang up and opened it, expecting a boy with the hat she had bought that morning. On the doorstep stood Mrs. Gardner and her daughters. Anne scrambled to her feet somehow, emptying two indignant cats out of her lap as she did so, and mechanically shifting her wishbone from her right hand to her left. Priscilla, who would have had to cross the room to reach the kitchen door, lost her head, wildly plunged the chocolate cake under a cushion on the ingle-nook sofa, and dashed upstairs. Stella began feverishly gathering up her manuscript. Only Aunt Jamesina and Phil remained normal. Thanks to them, everybody was soon sitting at ease, even Anne. Priscilla came down, apronless and smudgeless, Stella reduced her corner to decency, and Phil saved the situation by a stream of ready small-talk. Mrs. Gardner was tall and thin and handsome, exquisitely gowned, cordial with a cordiality that seemed a trifle forced. Aline Gardner was a younger edition of her mother, lacking the cordiality. She endeavoured to be nice, but succeeded only in being haughty and patronising. Dorothy Gardner was slim and jolly and rather tomboyish. Anne knew she was Roy's favourite sister and warm to her. She would have looked very much like Roy if she had had dreamy dark eyes instead of roguish hazel ones. Thanks to her and Phil the call really went off very well, except for a slight sense of strain in the atmosphere, and two rather untoward incidents. 
Rusty and Joseph, left to themselves, began a game of chase, and sprang madly into Mrs. Gardner's silken lap and out of it in their wild career. Mrs. Gardner lifted her lorgnette and gazed after their flying forms as if she had never seen cats before, and Anne, choking back slightly nervous laughter, apologized as best she could. "'You are fond of cats?' said Mrs. Gardner, with a slight intonation of tolerant wonder. Anne, despite her affection for Rusty, was not especially fond of cats. But Mrs. Gardner's tone annoyed her. Inconsequently, she remembered that Mrs. John Blythe was so fond of cats that she kept as many as her husband would allow. "'They are adorable animals, aren't they?' she said wickedly. "'I have never liked cats,' said Mrs. Gardner remotely. "'I love them,' said Dorothy. "'They're so nice and selfish. Dogs are too good and unselfish. They make me feel uncomfortable. But cats are gloriously human.' "'You have two delightful old china dogs there. May I look at them closely?' said Aline, crossing the room towards the fireplace, and thereby becoming the unconscious cause of the other accident. Picking up Magog, she sat down on the cushion under which was secreted Priscilla's chocolate cake. Priscilla and Anne exchanged agonized glances, but could do nothing. The stately Aline continued to sit on the cushion and discuss china dogs until the time of departure. Dorothy lingered behind a moment to squeeze Anne's hand and whisper impulsively, "'I know you and I are going to be chums. Oh, Roy has told me all about you. I'm the only one of the family he tells things to, poor boy. Nobody could confine in Mama and Aline, you know. What glorious times you girls must have here! Won't you let me come often and have a share in them?' "'Come as often as you like,' Anne responded heartily, thankful that one of Roy's sisters was likable. She would never like Aline. So much was certain and Aline would never like her, though Mrs. Gardner might be one. Altogether Anne sighed with relief when the ordeal was over. "'Of all sad words of tongue or pen, the saddest are it might have been,' quoted Priscilla tragically, lifting the cushion. "'This cake is now what you might call a flat failure, and the cushion is likewise ruined. Never tell me that Friday isn't unlucky.' "'People who send word they are coming on Saturday shouldn't come on Friday,' said Aunt Jamesina. I fancy it was Roy's mistake," said Phil. That boy isn't really responsible for what he says when he talks to Anne. Where is Anne? Anne had gone upstairs. She felt oddly like crying, but she made herself laugh instead. Rusty and Joseph had been too awful. And Dorothy was a dear. End of chapter 36 All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Chapter thirty seven of Anne of the Island by Lucy Maud Montgomery. Read for LibriVox by Karen Savage. Visit LibriVox.org for more information or to volunteer. Anne of the Island. Chapter thirty seven. Full fledged BAs. I wish I were dead, or that it were tomorrow night, groaned Phil. If you live long enough, both wishes will come true, said Anne calmly. It's easy for you to be serene. You're at home in philosophy. I'm not. And when I think of that horrible paper tomorrow, I quail. If I should fail in it, what would Joe say? You won't fail. How did you get on in Greek today? I don't know. Perhaps it was a good paper, and perhaps it was bad enough to make Homer turn over in his grave. I've studied and mulled over notebooks until I'm incapable of forming an opinion of anything. How thankful little Phil will be when all this examinating is over. Examinating? I never heard such a word. "'Well, haven't I as good a right to make a word as anyone else?' demanded Phil. "'Words aren't made. They grow,' said Anne. "'Never mind. I begin faintly to discern clear water ahead where no examination breakers loom. "'Girls, do you—do 
Can you realize that our Redmond life is almost over? I can't, said Anne sorrowfully. It seemed just yesterday that Pris and I were alone in that crowd of freshmen at Redmond, and now we are seniors in our final examinations. Potent, wise, and reverend seniors, quoted Phil. Do you suppose we really are any wiser than when we came to Redmond? You don't act as if you were by times, said Aunt Jamesina severely. Oh, Aunt Jimsie, haven't we been pretty good girls, take us by and large, these three winters you've mothered us? pleaded Phil. You've been four of the dearest, sweetest, goodest girls that ever went together through college, averred Aunt Jamesina, who never spoiled a compliment by misplaced economy. But I mistrust you haven't any too much sense yet. It's not to be expected, of course. Experience teaches sense. You can't learn it in a college course. You've been to college four years, and I never was. But I know heaps more than you do, young ladies. There are lots of things that never go by rule. There's a powerful pile of knowledge that you never get at college. There are heaps of things you never learn at school," quoted Stella. "'Have you learned anything at Redmond except dead languages and geometry and such trash?' queried Aunt Jamesina. "'Oh, yes, I think we have, Auntie,' protested Anne. "'We've learned the truth of what Professor Woodley told us last philomathic,' said Phil. He said, "'Humor is the spiciest condiment in the feast of existence. Laugh at your mistakes, but learn from them. Joke over your troubles, but gather strength from them. Make a jest of your difficulties, but overcome them. Isn't that worth learning, Aunt Jimsy? Yes, it is, dearie. When you've learned to laugh at the things that should be laughed at, and not to laugh at those that shouldn't, you've got wisdom and understanding. What have you got out of your Redmond course, Anne? murmured Priscilla aside. I think, said Anne slowly, that I really have learned to look upon each little hindrance as a jest, and each great one as a foreshadowing of victory. Summing up, I think that is what Redmond has given me. I shall have to fall back on another Professor Woodley quotation to express what it has done for me," said Priscilla. You remember that he said in his address, There is so much in the world for us all if we only have the eyes to see it, and the heart to love it, and the hand to gather it to ourselves. So much in men and women, so much in art and literature, so much everywhere in which to delight and for which to be thankful. I think Redmond has taught me that in some measure, Anne. Judging from what you all say, remarked Aunt Jamesina, the sum and substance is that you can learn, if you've got natural gumption enough, in four years at college, what it would take about twenty years of living to teach you. Well, that justifies higher education, in my opinion. It's a matter I was always dubious about before. But what about people who haven't natural gumption, Aunt Jimsie? People who haven't natural gumption never learn, retorted Aunt Jamesina, neither in college nor life. If they live to be a hundred, they really don't know anything more than when they were born. It's their misfortune, not their fault, poor souls. But those of us who have some gumption should duly thank the Lord for it." "'Will you please define what gumption is, Aunt Jimsie?" asked Phil. "'No, I won't, young woman. Anyone who has gumption knows what it is, and anyone who hasn't can never know what it is. So there is no need of defining it." The busy days flew by and examinations were over. Anne took high honors in English. Priscilla took honors in classics, and Phil in mathematics. Stella obtained a good all-round showing. Then came convocation. "'This is what I would once have called an epoch in my life,' said Anne, as she took Roy's violets out of their box and gazed at them thoughtfully. She meant to carry them, of course, but her eyes wandered to another box on her table. It was filled with lilies of the valley, as fresh and fragrant as those which bloomed in the green gables yard when June came to Avonlea. Gilbert Blythe's card lay beside it. Anne wondered why Gilbert should have sent her flowers for convocation. She had seen very little of him during the past winter. He had come to Patty's place only one Friday evening since the Christmas holidays, and they rarely met elsewhere. 
She knew he was studying very hard, aiming at high honours and the Cooper Prize, and he took little part in the social doings of Redmond. Anne's own winter had been quite gay socially. She had seen a good deal of the Gardners. She and Dorothy were very intimate. College circles expected the announcement of her engagement to Roy any day. Anne expected it herself. Yet just before she left Patty's place for convocation, she flung Roy's violets aside and put Gilbert's lilies of the valley in their place. She could not have told why she did it. Somehow, old Avonlea days and dreams and friendships seemed very close to her in this attainment of her long-cherished ambitions. She and Gilbert had once pictured out merrily the day on which they should be captain-gowned graduates in arts. The wonderful day had come, and Roy's violets had no place in it. Only her old friend's flowers seemed to belong to this fruition of old blossoming hopes which he had once shared. For years this day had beckoned and allured to her. But when it came the one single, keen, abiding memory it left with her was not that of the breathless moment when the stately president of Redmond gave her cap and diploma and hailed her B.A. It was not of the flash in Gilbert's eyes when he saw her lilies, nor the puzzled, pained glance Roy gave her as he passed her on the platform. It was not of Aline Gardner's condescending congratulations or Dorothy's ardent, impulsive good wishes. It was of one strange, unaccountable pang that spoiled this long-expected day for her and left in it a certain faint but enduring flavor of bitterness. The arts graduates gave a graduation dance that night. When Anne dressed for it, she tossed aside the pearl beads she usually wore and took from her trunk the small box that had come to Green Gables on Christmas Day. In it was a thread-like gold chain with a tiny pink enamel heart as a pendant. On the accompanying card was written, With all good wishes from your old chum Gilbert. Anne, laughing over the memory the enamel heart conjured up of the fatal day when Gilbert had called her carrots and vainly tried to make his peace with a pink candy heart, had written him a nice little note of thanks. But she had never worn the trinket. Tonight she fastened it about her white throat with a dreamy smile. She and Phil walked to Redmond together. Anne walked in silence. Phil chattered of many things. Suddenly she said, I heard today that Gilbert Blythe's engagement to Christine Stewart was to be announced as soon as convocation was over. Did you hear anything of it? No, said Anne. I think it's true, said Phil lightly. Anne did not speak. In the darkness she felt her face burning. She slipped her hand inside her collar and caught at the gold chain. One energetic twist and it gave way. Anne thrust the broken trinket into her pocket. Her hands were trembling and her eyes were smarting. But she was the gayest of all the gay revellers that night, and told Gilbert unregretfully that her card was full when he came to ask her for a dance. Afterwards, when she sat with the girls before the dying embers at Patty's place, removing the spring chilliness from their satin skins, none chatted more blithely than she of the day's events. "'Moody Spurgeon MacPherson called here tonight after you left,' said Aunt Jamesina, who had sat up to keep the fire on. He didn't know about the graduation dance. That boy ought to sleep with a rubber band around his head to train his ears not to stick out. I had a beau once who did that, and it improved him immensely. It was I who suggested it to him, and he took my advice. But he never forgave me for it." "'Moody Spurgeon is a very serious young man,' yawned Priscilla. He is concerned with graver matters than his ears. He is going to be a minister, you know." "'Well, I suppose the Lord doesn't regard the ears of a man,' said Aunt Jamesina gravely, dropping all further criticism of Moody Spurgeon. Aunt Jamesina had a proper respect for the cloth even in the case of an unfledged parson. End of chapter 37 All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Chapter 38 of Anne of the Island by Lucy Maud Montgomery Read for LibriVox by Karen Savage 
Visit LibriVox.org for more information or to volunteer. Anne of the Island. Chapter 38. False Dawn. Just imagine. This night week I'll be in Avonlea. Delightful thought, said Anne, bending over the box in which she was packing Mrs. Rachel Lynde's quilts. But just imagine. This night week I'll be gone forever from Patty's place. Horrible thought. I wonder if the ghost of all our laughter will echo through the maiden dreams of Miss Patty and Miss Maria, speculated Phil. Miss Patty and Miss Maria were coming home, after having trotted over most of the habitable globe. "'We'll be back the second week in May,' wrote Miss Patty. "'I expect Patty's place will seem rather small after the Hall of the Kings at Karnak, but I never did like big places to live in. And I'll be glad enough to be home again. When you start travelling late in life you're apt to do too much of it because you know you haven't much time left, and it's a thing that grows on you. I'm afraid Maria will never be contented again.' I shall leave here my fancies and dreams to bless the next comer," said Anne, looking around the blue room wistfully—her pretty blue room where she had spent three such happy years. She had knelt at its window to pray and had bent from it to watch the sunset behind the pines. She had heard the autumn raindrops beating against it and had welcomed the spring robins at its sill. She wondered if old dreams could haunt rooms—if, when one left forever the room where she had joyed and suffered and laughed and wept, Something of her, intangible and invisible, yet nonetheless real, did not remain behind like a voiceful memory. "'I think,' said Phil, "'that a room where one dreams and grieves and rejoices and lives becomes inseparably connected with those processes and acquires a personality of its own. I am sure if I came into this room fifty years from now it would say Anne, Anne to me. What nice times we've had here, honey! What chats and jokes and good chummy jamborees! Oh, dear me!' I'm to marry Joe in June, and I know I will be rapturously happy, but just now I feel as if I wanted this lovely Redmond life to go on forever." "'I'm unreasonable enough just now to wish that, too,' admitted Anne. No matter what deeper joys may come to us later on, we'll never again have just the same delightful, irresponsible existence we've had here. It's over forever, Phil." "'What are you going to do with Rusty?' asked Phil, as that privileged pussy padded into the room. I am going to take him home with me and Joseph and the Sarah Cat," announced Aunt Jamesina, following Rusty. It would be a shame to separate those cats now that they have learned to live together. It's a hard lesson for cats and humans to learn. I'm sorry to part with Rusty," said Anne regretfully, but it would be no use to take him to Green Gables. Marilla detests cats, and Davy would tease his life out. Besides, I don't suppose I'll be home very long. I've been offered the principalship of the Summerside High School. Are you going to accept it? asked Phil. I—I I haven't decided yet," answered Anne, with a confused flush. Phil nodded understandingly. Naturally, Anne's plans could not be settled until Roy had spoken. He would soon, there was no doubt of that. And there was no doubt that Anne would say yes when he said, "'Will you please?' Anne herself regarded the state of affairs with a seldom-ruffled complacency. She was deeply in love with Roy. True, it was not just what she had imagined love to be. But was anything in life, Anne asked herself wearily, like one's imagination of it? It was the old diamond disillusion of childhood repeated, the same disappointment she had felt when she had first seen the chill sparkle instead of the purple splendor she had anticipated. That's not my idea of a diamond, she had said. But Roy was a dear fellow, and they would be very happy together, even if some indefinable zest was missing out of life. When Roy came down that evening and asked Anne to walk in the park, Every one at Patty's place knew what he had come to say, and every one knew, or thought they knew, what Anne's answer would be. 
Anne is a very fortunate girl, said Aunt Jamesina. I suppose so, said Stella, shrugging her shoulders. Roy's a nice fellow and all that, but there's really nothing in him. That sounds very like a jealous remark, Stella Maynard, said Aunt Jamesina rebukingly. It does, but I'm not jealous, said Stella calmly. I love Anne, and I like Roy. Everybody says she is making a brilliant match, and even Mrs. Gardner thinks her charming now. It all sounds as if it were made in heaven, but I have my doubts. Make the most of that, Aunt Jamesina." Roy asked Anne to marry him in the little pavilion on the harbor shore where they had talked on the rainy day of their first meeting. Anne thought it very romantic that he should have chosen that spot. And his proposal was as beautifully worded as if he had copied it, as one of Ruby Gillis's lovers had done, out of a deportment of courtship and marriage. The whole effect was quite flawless. And it was also sincere. There was no doubt that Roy meant what he said. There was no false note to jar the symphony. Anne felt that she ought to be thrilling from head to foot. But she wasn't. She was horribly cool. When Roy paused for his answer she opened her lips to say her fateful yes, and then she found herself trembling as if she were reeling back from a precipice. To her came one of those moments when we realize as by a blinding flash of illumination more than all our previous years have taught us. She pulled her hand from Roy's. "'Oh, I can't marry you! I can't! I can't!' she cried wildly. Roy turned pale, and also looked rather foolish. He had, small blame to him, felt very sure. "'What do you mean?' he stammered. "'I mean that I can't marry you,' repeated Anne desperately. "'I thought I could, but I can't!' "'Why can't you?' Roy asked more calmly. "'Because I don't care enough for you.' A crimson streak came into Roy's face. "'So you've just been amusing yourself these two years,' he said slowly. "'No, no, I haven't,' gasped poor Anne. "'Oh, how could she explain? She couldn't explain. There are some things that cannot be explained. I did think I cared, truly I did. But I know now I don't.' "'You have ruined my life,' said Roy bitterly. "'Forgive me,' pleaded Anne miserably, with hot cheeks and stinging eyes. Roy turned away and stood for a few minutes looking out seaward. When he came back to Anne he was very pale again. "'You can give me no hope,' he said. Anne shook her head mutely. "'Then good-bye,' said Roy. "'I can't understand it. I can't believe you're not the woman I've believed you to be. But reproaches are idle between us. You are the only woman I can ever love. I thank you for your friendship, at least. Good-bye, Anne.' "'Good-bye,' faltered Anne. When Roy had gone she sat for a long time in the pavilion, watching a white mist creeping subtly and remorselessly landward up the harbour. It was her hour of humiliation and self-contempt and shame. Their waves went over her. And yet, underneath it all, was a queer sense of recovered freedom. She slipped into Patty's place in the dusk and escaped to her room. But Phil was there on the window-seat. "'Wait,' said Anne, flushing to anticipate the scene. "'Wait till you hear what I have to say.' Phil, Roy asked me to marry him, and I refused. You—you you refused him? said Phil blankly. Yes. Anne Shirley, are you in your senses? I think so, said Anne wearily. Oh, Phil, don't scold me. You don't understand. I certainly don't understand. You've encouraged Roy Gardner in every way for two years, and now you tell me you refused him. Then you've just been flirting scandalously with him. Anne, I couldn't have believed it of you. I wasn't flirting with him. I honestly thought I cared up to the last minute, and then—well, I just knew I never could marry him. 
"'I suppose,' said Phil cruelly, "'that you intended to marry him for his money, and then your better self rose up and prevented you.' "'I didn't. I never thought about his money. Oh, I can't explain it to you any more than I could to him.' "'Well, I certainly think you have treated Roy shamefully,' said Phil in exasperation. "'He's handsome and clever and rich and good. What more do you want?' "'I want someone who belongs in my life. He doesn't. I was swept off my feet at first by his good looks and knack of paying romantic compliments, and later on I thought I must be in love because he was my dark-eyed ideal. I am bad enough for not knowing my own mind, but you are worse," said Phil. I do know my own mind, protested Anne. The trouble is my mind changes, and then I have to get acquainted with it all over again. Well, I suppose there is no use in saying anything to you. There is no need, Phil. I am in the dust. This has spoiled everything backwards. I can never think of Redmond days without recalling the humiliation of this evening. Roy despises me, and you despise me, and I despise myself." Oh, "'You poor darling,' said Phil, melting. "'Just come here and let me comfort you. I've no right to scold you. I'd have married Alec or Alonzo if I hadn't met Joe.' "'Oh, Anne, things are so mixed up in real life. They aren't clear-cut and trimmed off as they are in novels. I hope that no one will ever again ask me to marry him as long as I live," sobbed poor Anne, devoutly believing that she meant it. End of chapter 38 All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Chapter 39 of Anne of the Island by Lucy Maud Montgomery Read for LibriVox by Karen Savage Visit LibriVox.org for more information or to volunteer. Anne of the Island Chapter 39 Deals with Weddings Anne felt that life partook of the nature of an anticlimax during the first few weeks after her return to Green Gables. She missed the merry comradeship of Patty's place. She had dreamed some brilliant dreams during the past winter, and now they lay in the dust around her. In her present mood of self-disgust she could not immediately begin dreaming again, and she discovered that, while solitude with dreams is glorious, Solitude without them has few charms. She had not seen Roy again after their painful parting in the park pavilion, but Dorothy came to see her before she left Kingsport. "'I'm awfully sorry you won't marry Roy,' she said. "'I did want you for a sister. But you were quite right. He would bore you to death. I love him, and he is a dear, sweet boy, but really he isn't a bit interesting. He looks as if he ought to be, but he isn't. This won't spoil our friendship, will it, Dorothy?' Anne had asked wistfully. No, indeed. You're too good to lose. If I can't have you for a sister, I mean to keep you as a chum anyway. And don't fret over Roy. He is feeling terribly just now. I have to listen to his outpourings every day. But he'll get over it. He always does." "'Oh, always,' said Anne, with a slight change of voice. "'So he has got over it before?' "'Dear me, yes,' said Dorothy frankly. "'Twice before. And he raved to me just the same both times. Not that the others actually refused him, they simply announced their engagements to someone else. Of course, when he met you, he vowed to me that he had never really loved before, that the previous affairs had been merely boyish fancies. But I don't think you need worry." Anne decided not to worry. Her feelings were a mixture of relief and resentment. Roy had certainly told her she was the only one he had ever loved—no doubt he believed it. But it was a comfort to feel that she had not, in all likelihood, ruined his life. There were other goddesses, and Roy, according to Dorothy, must needs be worshipping at some shrine. Nevertheless, life was stripped of several more illusions, and Anne began to think drearily that it seemed rather bare. 
She came down from the porch gable on the evening of her return with a sorrowful face. "'What has happened to the old Snow Queen, Marilla?' "'Oh, I knew you'd feel bad over that,' said Marilla. "'I felt bad myself. That tree was there ever since I was a young girl. It blew down in the big gale we had in March. It was rotten at the core.' "'I'll miss it so,' grieved Anne. "'The porch gable doesn't seem the same room without it. I'll never look from its window again without a sense of loss. And, oh, I never came home to Green Gables before that Diana wasn't here to welcome me." "'Diana has something else to think of just now,' said Mrs. Lynde significantly. "'Well, tell me all the Avonlea news,' said Anne, sitting down on the porch steps where the evening sunshine fell over her hair in a fine golden rain. "'There isn't much news except what we wrote you,' said Mrs. Lynde. "'I suppose you haven't heard that Simon Fletcher broke his leg last week. It's a great thing for his family. They're getting a hundred things done that they've always wanted to do, but couldn't as long as he was about the old crank." "'He came of an aggravating family,' remarked Marilla. "'Aggravating? Well, rather. His mother used to get up in prayer meetings and tell all her children's shortcomings and ask prayers for them. Of course it made them mad, and worse than ever." "'You haven't told Anne the news about Jane,' suggested Marilla. "'Oh, Jane,' sniffed Mrs. Lynde. "'Well,' she conceded grudgingly, "'Jane Andrews is home from the West. Came last week and she's going to be married to a Winnipeg millionaire. You may be sure Mrs. Harmon lost no time in telling it far and wide." "'Dear old Jane, I'm so glad,' said Anne heartily. She deserves the good things of life. Oh, I ain't saying anything against Jane. She's a nice enough girl. But she isn't in the millionaire class, and you'll find there's not much to recommend that man but his money, that's what. Mrs. Harmon says he's an Englishman who has made his money in mines, but I believe he'll turn out to be a Yankee. He certainly must have money, for he has just showered Jane with jewelry. Her engagement ring is a diamond cluster so big that it looks like a plaster on Jane's fat paw." Mrs. Lynde could not keep some bitterness out of her tone. Here was Jane Andrews, that plain little plotter, engaged to a millionaire, while Anne, it seemed, was not yet bespoken by anyone, rich or poor. And Mrs. Harmon Andrews did brag insufferably. "'What has Gilbert Blythe been doing to at college?' asked Marilla. I saw him when he came home last week, and he is so pale and thin I hardly knew him." "'He studied very hard last winter,' said Anne. You know he took high honors in classes and the Cooper Prize. It hasn't been taken for five years. So I think he's rather run down. We're all a little tired." "'Anyhow, you're a B.A., and Jane Andrews isn't and never will be,' said Mrs. Lynde, with gloomy satisfaction." A few evenings later Anne went down to see Jane, but the latter was away in Charlottetown. Getting sewing done, Mrs. Harmon informed Anne proudly. Of course, an Avonlea dressmaker wouldn't do for Jane under the circumstances." "'I've heard something very nice about Jane,' said Anne. "'Yes, Jane has done pretty well, even if she isn't a B.A.,' said Mrs. Harmon, with a slight toss of her head. "'Mr. Inglis is worth millions, and they're going to Europe on their wedding tour. When they come back they'll live in a perfect mansion of marble in Winnipeg. Jane has only one trouble. She can cook so well and her husband won't let her cook. He is so rich he hires his cooking done. They're going to keep a cook and two other maids, and a coachman and a man of all work. But what about you, Anne? I don't hear anything of your being married after all your college going." Oh, laughed Anne, I'm going to be an old maid. I really can't find anyone to suit me. It was rather wicked of her. She deliberately meant to remind Mrs. Andrews that if she became an old maid, it was not because she had not had at least one chance of marriage. But Mrs. Harmon took swift revenge. Well, the over-particular girls generally get left, I notice. And what's this I hear about Gilbert Blythe being engaged to a Miss Stewart? Charlie Sloane tells me she is perfectly beautiful. Is it true?" 
I don't know if it is true that he is engaged to Miss Stewart, replied Anne with Spartan composure, but it is certainly true that she is very lovely. I once thought you and Gilbert would have made a match of it, said Mrs. Harmon. If you don't take care, Anne, all of your bows will slip through your fingers. Anne decided not to continue her duel with Mrs. Harmon. You could not fence with an antagonist who met rapier thrust with blow of battle-axe. Since Jane is away, she said, rising haughtily, I don't think I can stay longer this morning. I'll come down when she comes home. Do, said Mrs. Harmon effusively. Jane isn't a bit proud. She just means to associate with her old friends the same as ever. She'll be real glad to see you. Jane's millionaire arrived the last of May, and carried her off in a blaze of splendor. Mrs. Lynde was spitefully gratified to find that Mr. Inglis was every day of forty, and short and thin and grayish. Mrs. Lynde did not spare him in her enumeration of his shortcomings, you may be sure. "'It will take all his gold to gild a pill like him, that's what,' said Mrs. Rachel solemnly. "'He looks kind and good-hearted,' said Anne loyally, "'and I'm sure he thinks the world of Jane.' <laughs> said Mrs. Rachel. Phil Gordon was married the next week, and Anne went over to Bolingbroke to be her bridesmaid. Phil made a dainty fairy of a bride, and the Reverend Joe was so radiant in his happiness that nobody thought him plain. "'We're going for a lover's saunter through the land of Evangeline,' said Phil, "'and then we'll settle down on Patterson Street. Mother thinks it is terrible. She thinks Joe might at least take a church in a decent place. But the wilderness of the Patterson slums will blossom like the rose for me if Joe is there. Oh, Anne, I'm so happy my heart aches with it." Anne was always glad in the happiness of her friends. But it is sometimes a little lonely to be surrounded everywhere by a happiness that is not your own. And it was just the same when she went back to Avonlea. This time it was Diana who was bathed in the wonderful glory that comes to a woman when her firstborn is laid beside her. Anne looked at the white young mother with a certain awe that had never entered into her feelings for Diana before. Could this pale woman with the rapture in her eyes be the little black-curled, rosy-cheeked Diana she had played with in vanished school days? It gave her a queer, desolate feeling that she herself somehow belonged only in those past years, and had no business in the present at all. "'Isn't he perfectly beautiful?' said Diana proudly. The little fat fellow was absurdly like Fred just as round, just as red. Anne really could not conscientiously say that she thought him beautiful, but she vowed sincerely that he was sweet and kissable and altogether delightful. "'Before he came I wanted a girl, so that I could call her Anne,' said Diana. "'But now that little Fred is here I wouldn't exchange him for a million girls. He just couldn't have been anything but his own precious self.' "'Every little baby is the sweetest and the best,' quoted Mrs. Allen gaily. "'If little Anne had come you'd have felt just the same about her.' Mrs. Allen was visiting in Avonlea for the first time since leaving it. She was as gay and sweet and sympathetic as ever. Her old girlfriends had welcomed her back rapturously. The reigning minister's wife was an estimable lady, but she was not exactly a kindred spirit. "'I can hardly wait till he gets old enough to talk,' sighed Diana. "'I just long to hear him say mother. And, oh, I'm determined that his first memory of me shall be a nice one. The first memory I have of my mother is of her slapping me for something I had done.' I'm sure I deserved it, and Mother was always a good mother, and I love her dearly, but I do wish my first memory of her was nicer. I have just one memory of my mother, and it is the sweetest of all my memories," said Mrs. Allen. I was five years old, and I had been allowed to go to school one day with my two older sisters. When school came out my sisters went home in different groups, each supposing I was with the other. Instead I had run off with the little girl I had played with at recess. We went to her home, which was near the school, and began making mud pies. We were having a glorious time when my older sister arrived, breathless and angry. 
"'You naughty girl!' she cried, snatching my reluctant hand and dragging me along with her. "'Come home this minute. Oh, you're going to catch it. Mother is awful cross. She's going to give you a good whipping.' I had never been whipped. Dread and terror filled my poor little heart. I have never been so miserable in my life as I was on that walk home. I had not meant to be naughty. Femi Cameron had asked me to go home with her, and I had not known it was wrong to go. And now I was to be whipped for it. When we got home my sister dragged me into the kitchen where Mother was sitting by the fire in the twilight. My poor wee legs were trembling so that I could hardly stand. And Mother—Mother just took me up in her arms without one word of rebuke or harshness, kissed me and held me close to her heart. "'I was so frightened you were lost, darling,' she said tenderly. I could see the love shining in her eyes as she looked down on me. She never scolded or reproached me for what I had done, only told me I must never go away again without asking permission. She died very soon afterwards. That is the only memory I have of her. Isn't it a beautiful one?" Anne felt lonelier than ever as she walked home, going by way of the birch path in Willowmere. She had not walked that way for many moons. It was a darkly purple, bloomy night. The air was heavy with blossom fragrance—almost too heavy. The cloyed senses recoiled from it as from an overfull cup. The birches of the path had grown from the fairy saplings of old to big trees. Everything had changed. Anne felt that she would be glad when the summer was over and she was away at work again. Perhaps life would not seem so empty then. "'I've tried the world. It wears no more the coloring of romance it wore,' sighed Anne, and was straightway much comforted by the romance and the idea of the world being denuded of romance. End of chapter 39 All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Chapter Forty of Anne of the Island by Lucy Maud Montgomery. Read for LibriVox by Karen Savage. Visit LibriVox.org for more information or to volunteer. Anne of the Island, Chapter Forty, A Book of Revelation. The Irvings came back to Echo Lodge for the summer, and Anne spent a happy three weeks there in July. Miss Lavender had not changed. Carlotta the Fourth was a very grown-up young lady now, but still adored Anne sincerely. When all said and done, Miss Shirley, ma'am, I haven't seen anyone in Boston that's equal to you," she said frankly. Paul was almost grown up, too. He was sixteen, his chestnut curls had given place to close-cropped brown locks, and he was more interested in football than fairies. But the bond between him and his old teachers still held. Kindred spirits alone do not change with changing years. It was a wet, bleak, cruel evening in July when Anne came back to Green Gables. One of the fierce summer storms which sometimes sweep over the gulf was ravaging the sea. As Anne came in, the first raindrops dashed against the panes. "'Was that Paul who brought you home?' asked Marilla. "'Why didn't you make him stay all night? It's going to be a wild evening. He'll reach Echo Lodge before the rain gets very heavy, I think. Anyway, he wanted to go back tonight. "'Well, I've had a splendid visit, but I'm glad to see you dear folks again. East, West, Hames best. Davy, have you been growing again lately?' I've grown a whole inch since you left," said Davy proudly. I'm as tall as Milty Bolter now. Ain't I glad. He'll have to stop crowing about being bigger. Say, Anne, did you know that Gilbert Blythe is dying? Anne stood quite silent and motionless, looking at Davy. Her face had gone so white that Marilla thought she was going to faint. Davy, hold your tongue," said Mrs. Rachel angrily. Anne, don't look like that. Don't look like that. We didn't mean to tell you so suddenly. Is it true? asked Anne, in a voice that was not hers. "'Gilbert is very ill,' said Mrs. Lynde gravely. "'He took down with typhoid fever just after you left for Echo Lodge. 
Did you never hear of it? No, said that unknown voice. It was a very bad case from the start. The doctor said he'd been terribly run down. They've a trained nurse and everything's been done. Don't look like that, Anne. While there's life, there's hope. Mr. Harrison was here this evening and he said they had no hope of him, reiterated Davy. Marilla, looking old and worn and tired, got up and marched Davy grimly out of the kitchen. Oh, don't look so, dear, said Mrs. Rachel, putting her kind old arms about the pallid girl. I haven't given up hope, indeed I haven't. He's got the blight constitution in his favor, that's what. Anne gently put Mrs. Lynde's arms away from her, walked blindly across the kitchen, through the hall, up the stairs to her old room. At its window she knelt down, staring out unseeingly. It was very dark. The rain was beating down over the shivering fields. The haunted woods was full of the groans of mighty trees wrung in the tempest, and the air throbbed with a thunderous crash of billows on the distant shore. And Gilbert was dying. There is a book of revelation in everyone's life, as there is in the Bible. Anne read hers that bitter night, as she kept her agonized vigil through the hours of storm and darkness. She loved Gilbert, had always loved him. She knew that now. She knew that she could no more cast him out of her life without agony than she could have cut off her right hand and cast it from her. And the knowledge had come too late, too late even for the bitter solace of being with him at the last. If she had not been so blind, so foolish, she would have had the right to go to him now. But he would never know that she loved him. He would go away from this life thinking that she did not care. Oh, the black years of emptiness stretching before her! She could not live through them. She could not. She cowered down by her window and wished, for the first time in her gay young life, that she could die too. If Gilbert went away from her without one word or sign or message, she could not live. Nothing was of any value without him. She belonged to him and he to her. In her hour of supreme agony she had no doubt of that. He did not love Christine Stewart, never had loved Christine Stewart. Oh, what a fool she had been not to realize what the bond was that had held her to Gilbert, to think that the flattered fancy she had felt for Roy Gardner had been love. And now she must pay for her folly as for a crime. Mrs. Lynde and Marilla crept to her door before they went to bed shook their heads doubtfully at each other over the silence, and went away. The storm raged all night, but when the dawn came it was spent. Anne saw a fairy fringe of light on the skirts of darkness. Soon the eastern hilltops had a fire-shot ruby rim. The clouds rolled themselves away into great soft white masses on the horizon. The sky gleamed blue and silvery. A hush fell over the world. Anne rose from her knees and crept downstairs. The freshness of the rain-wind blew against her white face as she went out into the yard and cooled her dry, burning eyes. A merry, rollicking whistle was lilting up the lane. A moment later Pacifique Butte came in sight. Anne's physical strength suddenly failed her. If she had not clutched at a low willow-bough she would have fallen. Pacifique was George Fletcher's hired man, and George Fletcher lived next door to the Blythes. Mrs. Fletcher was Gilbert's aunt. Pacifique would know if—if—Pacifique would know what there was to be known. Pacifique strode sturdily on along the red lane, whistling. He did not see Anne. She made three futile attempts to call him. He was almost past before she succeeded in making her quivering lips call, Pacifique! Pacifique turned with a grin and a cheerful good morning. Pacifique, said Anne faintly, did you come from George Fletcher's this morning? Sure, 
said Pacifique amiably. I got the word last night that my father he was sick. It was so stormy that I couldn't go then, so I start very early this morning. I'm going through the woods for shortcut. Did you hear how Gilbert Blythe was this morning? Anne's desperation drove her to the question. Even the worst would be more endurable than this hideous suspense. He's better, said Pacifique. He got to turn last night. The doctor say he'll be all right now this soon while. Had close shave, though. That boy, he just kill himself at college. Well, I must hurry. The old man, he'll be in a hurry to see me." Pacifique resumed his walk and his whistle. Anne gazed after him with eyes where joy was driving out the strained anguish of the night. He was a very lank, very ragged, very homely youth, but in her sight he was as beautiful as those who bring good tidings on the mountains. Never as long as she lived would Anne see Pacifique's brown, round, black-eyed face without a warm remembrance of the moment when he had given to her the oil of joy for mourning. Long after Pacifique's gay whistle had faded into the phantom of music and then into silence far up under the maples of Lover's Lane, Anne stood under the willows, tasting the poignant sweetness of life when some great dread has been removed from it. The morning was a cup filled with mist and glamour. In the corner near her was a rich surprise of new-blown, crystal-dewed roses. The trills and trickles of song from the birds in the big tree above her seemed in perfect accord with her mood. A sentence from a very old, very true, very wonderful book came to her lips. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. End of chapter 40 All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Chapter 41 of Anne of the Island by Lucy Maud Montgomery Read for LibriVox by Karen Savage Visit LibriVox.org for more information or to volunteer. Anne of the Island, Chapter 41 Love Takes Up the Glass of Time I've come up to ask you to go for one of our old-time rambles through September woods and over hills where spices grow this afternoon, said Gilbert, coming suddenly around the porch corner. Suppose we visit Hester Gray's garden. Anne, sitting on the stone step with her lap full of a pale, filmy green stuff, looked up rather blankly. Oh, I wish I could, she said slowly, but I really can't, Gilbert. I'm going to Alice Penhallow's wedding this evening, you know. I've got to do something to this dress, and by the time it's finished I'll have to get ready. I'm so sorry. I'd love to go. Well, can you go tomorrow afternoon, then? asked Gilbert, apparently not much disappointed. Yes, I think so. In that case I shall hie me home at once to do something I should otherwise have to do tomorrow. So Alice Penhallow is to be married tonight. Three weddings for you in one summer, Anne. Phil's, Alice's, and Jane's. I'll never forgive Jane for not inviting me to her wedding. You really can't blame her when you think of the tremendous Andrews connection who had to be invited. The house could hardly hold them all. I was only bidden by grace of being Jane's old chum—at least on Jane's part. I think Mrs. Harmon's motive for inviting me was to let me see Jane's surpassing gorgeousness. Is it true that she wore so many diamonds that you couldn't tell where the diamonds left off and Jane began? Anne laughed. <laughs> she certainly wore a good many. What with all the diamonds and white satin and tulle and lace and roses and orange blossoms, prim little Jane was almost lost to sight. But she was very happy, and so was Mr. Inglis, and so was Mrs. Harmon. "'Is that the dress you're going to wear tonight?' asked Gilbert, looking down at the fluffs and frills. "'Yes, isn't it pretty? I shall wear star-flowers in my hair. The haunted wood is full of them this summer.' Gilbert had a sudden vision of Anne, arrayed in a frilly green gown, with the virginal curves of arms and throat slipping out of it, and white stars shining against the coils of her ruddy hair. The vision made him catch his breath. 
but he turned lightly away. "'Well, I'll be up tomorrow. Hope you'll have a nice time tonight.' Anne looked after him as he strode away and sighed. Gilbert was friendly—very friendly. Far too friendly. He had come quite often to Green Gables after his recovery, and something of their old comradeship had returned. But Anne no longer found it satisfying. The rose of love made the blossom of friendship pale and scentless by contrast. And Anne had again begun to doubt if Gilbert now felt anything for her but friendship. In the common light of common day her radiant certainty of that rapt morning had faded. She was haunted by a miserable fear that her mistake could never be rectified. It was quite likely that it was Christine whom Gilbert loved, after all. Perhaps he was even engaged to her. Anne tried to put all unsettling hopes out of her heart and reconcile herself to a future where work and ambition must take the place of love. She could do good, if not noble, work as a teacher. And the success her little sketches were beginning to meet with in certain editorial sanctums augured well for her budding literary dreams. But—but— Anne picked up her green dress and sighed again. When Gilbert came the next afternoon he found Anne waiting for him, fresh as the dawn and fair as a star, after all the gaiety of the preceding night. She wore a green dress—not the one she had worn to the wedding, but an old one which Gilbert had told her at a Redmond reception he liked especially. It was just the shade of green that brought out the rich tints of her hair and the starry gray of her eyes and the iris-like delicacy of her skin. Gilbert, glancing at her sideways as they walked along a shadowy wood-path, thought she had never looked so lovely. Anne, glancing sideways at Gilbert now and then, thought how much older he looked since his illness. It was as if he had put boyhood behind him forever. The day was beautiful, and the way was beautiful. Anne was almost sorry when they reached Hester Gray's garden and sat down on the old bench. But it was beautiful there, too, as beautiful as it had been on the faraway day of the golden picnic, when Diana and Jane and Priscilla and she had found it. Then it had been lovely with narcissus and violets. Now goldenrod had kindled its fairy torches in the corners, and asters dotted it bluely. The call of the brook came up through the woods from the valley of birches with all its old allurement. The mellow air was full of the purr of the sea. Beyond were fields rimmed by fences bleached silvery-gray in the suns of many summers, and long hills scarfed with the shadows of autumnal clouds. With the blowing of the west wind old dreams returned. "'I think,' said Anne softly, "'that—' The land where dreams come true is in the blue haze yonder, over that little valley." "'Have you any unfulfilled dreams, Anne?' asked Gilbert. Something in his tone—something she had not heard since that miserable evening in the orchard at Patty's place—made Anne's heart beat wildly. But she made answer lightly. "'Of course. Everybody has. It wouldn't do for us to have all our dreams fulfilled. We would be as good as dead if we had nothing left to dream about. What a delicious aroma that low-descending sun is extracting from the asters and ferns! I wish we could see perfumes as well as smell them. I am sure they would be very beautiful." Gilbert was not to be thus sidetracked. "'I have a dream,' he said slowly. I persist in dreaming it, although it has often seemed to me that it could never come true. I dream of a home with a hearth-fire in it, a cat and dog, the footsteps of friends—and you. Anne wanted to speak, but she could find no words. Happiness was breaking over her like a wave. It almost frightened her. "'I asked you a question over two years ago, Anne. If I ask it again today, will you give me a different answer?' Still Anne could not speak. But she lifted her eyes, shining with all the love-rapture of countless generations, 
and looked into his for a moment. He wanted no other answer. They lingered in the old garden until twilight, sweet as dusk in Eden must have been, crept over it. There was so much to talk over and recall, things said and done and heard and thought and felt and misunderstood. I thought you loved Christine Stewart, Anne told him, as reproachfully as if she had not given him every reason to suppose that she loved Roy Gardner. Gilbert laughed boyishly. <laughs> Christine was engaged to somebody in her home town. I knew it, and she knew I knew it. When her brother graduated he told me his sister was coming to Kingsport the next winter to take music, and asked me if I would look after her a bit if she knew no one and would be very lonely. So I did, and then I liked Christine for her own sake. She is one of the nicest girls I've ever known. I knew college gossip credited us with being in love with each other. I didn't care. Nothing mattered much to me for a time there after you told me you could never love me, Anne. There was nobody else. There never could be anybody else for me but you. I've loved you ever since that day you broke your slate over my head in school." "'I don't see how you could keep on loving me when I was such a little fool,' said Anne. "'Well, I tried to stop,' said Gilbert frankly. "'Not because I thought you what you call yourself, but because I felt sure there was no chance for me after Gardner came on the scene. But I couldn't. And I can't tell you either what it's meant to me these two years to believe you were going to marry him and be told every week by some busybody that your engagement was on the point of being announced. I believed it until one blessed day when I was sitting up after the fever. I got a letter from Phil Gordon—Phil oh, Blake, rather—in which he told me there was really nothing between you and Roy, and advised me to try again. Well, the doctor was amazed at my rapid recovery after that." Anne laughed, then shivered. I could never forget the night I thought you were dying, Gilbert. Oh, I knew—I knew then, and I thought it was too late. But it wasn't, sweetheart. Oh, Anne, this makes up for everything, doesn't it? Let's resolve to keep this day sacred to perfect beauty all our lives for the gift it has given us. It's the birthday of our happiness," said Anne softly. I've always loved this old garden of Hester Gray's, and now it will be dearer than ever. But I'll have to ask you to wait a long time, Anne," said Gilbert sadly. It will be three years before I'll finish my medical course, and even then there will be no diamond sunbursts and marble halls. Anne laughed. I don't want sunbursts and marble halls. I just want you. You see, I'm quite as shameless as Phil about it. Sunbursts and marble halls may be all very well, but there is more scope for imagination without them. And as for the waiting, that doesn't matter. We'll just be happy waiting and working for each other, and dreaming. Oh, dreams will be very sweet now." Gilbert drew her close to him and kissed her. Then they walked home together in the dusk, crowned king and queen in the bridal realm of love, along winding paths fringed with the sweetest flowers that ever bloomed and over haunted meadows where winds of hope and memory blew. End of chapter 41 End of Anne of the Island by Lucy Maud Montgomery All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain.